when Jesus comes to Christ Presbyterian Church. <clears throat> Jesus left the wedding feast in Cana. We joined him there last week. He left the wedding feast in Cana and walked with his disciples, his mother, and his brothers. The disciples were probably Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And they went down to Capernaum from Cana. It's about 20 miles. Cana is in the hills. Capernaum is down on sea level at the Sea of Galilee. So they walked down, we're told, to Capernaum. Matthew tells us in his gospel in the fourth chapter, the 13th verse, that Jesus moved from his hometown of Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry to Capernaum. He actually lived there. We've already seen that Andrew, Peter, James, John, and Philip were from that immediate area. So uh, these people were walking, the, the disciples with Jesus, they were walking home to their, where they lived. He's only there a few days, we read, and he goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. John records, John, John records Jesus going up to Jerusalem for three different Passovers. It's unique to his gospel. This was the first he recorded. We remember he went as a child probably several times. It makes sense, though, doesn't it, that this person who has started his ministry as Messiah, has started the calling for which he came, it makes sense that he would not miss the first Passover after beginning his ministry. Passover was the greatest of all of the religious celebrations and feasts in Israel. Jewish pilgrims in Israel and from all over the Mediterranean area flocked to Jerusalem during the Passover. It's estimated that there were 250,000 pilgrims. That's a minimum. That's a very con conservative estimate that the population of Jerusalem during that Passover week would increase by 250,000. That's 250,000 people coming to Jerusalem for this week from outside of Jerusalem. The temple area would have been the focal point of everyone gathering for the feast. Put yourself in the middle of that crowded city. There at the temple where it was just packed. Jesus probably entered Jerusalem and went immediately to the temple. A sacrifice was required during the Passover. For the convenience of the pilgrims, sacrificial animals, birds, sheep, and oxen, were sold in the street leading to the temple. That's the way it usually was. There was a required temple tax that each pilgrim had to pay when he entered the temple. Maybe 200,000 of the pilgrims came from other nations. They had to have a specific coinage to pay this temple tax. They had money from their 
home nations where they lived scattered throughout the empire or they had coinage from the Roman Empire. So that required a currency exchange there at the temple. Thus, there were business folks there called money changers. You can see them sitting at the table with stacks of coins on the table. Now, there was nothing wrong with these businesses if they were practiced honestly. But there was plenty of room for dishonesty. The sacrifices, for instance, had to be without blemish. If I was from Israel and I had brought a lamb or an oxen from my own flock of sheep or my own herd, bringing one from my own farm, the priest might look at it and declare it to be unfit, declare it to be blemished, requiring me to buy from there, from the businesses there near the temple. The money changers could charge exorbitant fees for their service. There's evidence that the high priest controlled or sold franchises to these vendors. That's part of the context, but we've only scratched the surface. If we're to understand what was happening, we must take, a, we must take into account what we learn from Matthew and Mark and Luke about this event. They place the event of Jesus cleansing the temple near the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, there's a reason for all this, so hang with me. In their Gospels, right after the triumphal entry of Jesus, near the end of Jesus' ministry, just before he was crucified, that's when this happens. As we have seen, John seems to place the event during Passover at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Was John describing the same event that Matthew and Mark and Luke described? John's gospel, it could be. John's gospel does not move in a chronological order. He could have easily just picked this event from the end and put it here in the second chapter. But it doesn't flow that way, does it? It doesn't read that way, does it? I agree with the scholars who say Jesus went to the temple and did this twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. He did it twice because they could not let go of their unholy and, and materialistic desecration of the temple. And it was offensive. At the beginning of his ministry, as he approaches the temple and sees this, Jesus was shocked that all this buying and selling was taking place inside the temple. We learn from history that at one time the animals, the animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives as the road approached the temple. That's where it used to be. However, by the time 
by this time that we read this morning. They'd actually moved these businesses inside the temple itself. There was an outer court called the court of the Gentiles. And they had moved it in to that court inside the actual temple. In John's record of this first encounter, notice that Jesus does not speak of their dishonesty and gouging the people who were coming to worship. He doesn't mention that. He is angry that they have moved the businesses into the very sanctuary of the temple. Look at verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He says nothing there about their dishonesty as he does in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Let me ask you a question. So he drove them out. These, these businesses were making money hand over fist. This was Passover. At least 250,000 people, maybe a half a million people, would pass through the temple buying sacrifices and paying their temple tax. These businesses were doing this in cooperation with the high priest and his subordinates. They couldn't be there otherwise. After Jesus did this, here's the question. After Jesus did this, how long do you think it took for them to return to this lucrative setup? You know they did. We know they did. That's why this happened twice. We can be quite sure that two years after this encounter, they had returned to their money-making co-op. In his second encounter with this cabal, Jesus exposes, he's not just angry that they're inside the temple, Jesus exposes their fraudulence, their corruption, and their price gouging. In that time, Jesus shouted, it is written We read this in our scripture this morning from Jeremiah chapter 7. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He called these, he said, you're robbers. You're extortionist. His emphasis in the second counter is on their treachery in the temple. If we are to understand this, so that we've gotten that far. He did this twice, probably. One time emphasizing that they were doing this inside the temple. They were turning this into a mall, into a shopping mall. The second time, he addressed their corruption. If we're to understand this event, we must also understand exactly what Jesus did. Here were sheep, oxen. Pigeons. You can imagine the noise, the smell. Owners and owners and customers bartering. Money changers sitting at the tables with stacks of coins. Jesus did not pull out a scroll and begin reading from the prophets. In the second encounter, he did shout a verse from Jeremiah. But he was not preaching a sermon. He didn't call together the merchants 
and begin to negotiate with them and, and reason with them about what they were doing. He didn't have a meeting with the high priest. So we need to sit down and talk about what's actually happening here. No, Jesus wrapped some cords together, making a whip. And he began turning over. This is Jesus now. He begins turning over these tables. He takes the whip and begins driving the animals out. He was hurting animals, their keepers, the money changers, the priests involved with just chicanery. And was literally driving them out by force. Now, all my life, I've heard Sunday school teachers and sometimes ministers say, you know, this was very, very unlike Jesus. I beg to differ. This is exactly like Jesus. He not only did this once, he did it twice. Think about, oh, think about a different encounter. Think about when Jesus asked who I am. Who do you say that I am? They said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And from that point in his ministry, Jesus began to tell them that he must die on a cross. And how did Peter respond to that? The leader of the disciples. Peter says, Jesus, that can't happen. The Messiah of Israel is not going to die on a Roman cross. And how did Jesus respond? Jesus got in Peter's face. He said, get Behind me, Satan. Call Peter Satan for even putting that temptation out there. Oh, this is like Jesus. Thursday night in this room, some of you were here. We studied Revelation 19. It's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And one of my favorite scenes inside that chapter is Revelation 19, verse 11. It's on your scripture sheet. Look at it. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, exclamation, behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges. And makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Linen. White and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is this warrior king riding a war horse and leading that great army? It is Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. This is the same Jesus that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember? Remember when Peter tried to protect Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? (laughs) That's a humorous sentence just to write it, just to say it. Uh, Peter, he's the son of God and you're, you're going to protect him. When Peter lopped off, the took his sword and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest that was there with, that, with those soldiers from the temple. What did Jesus say to him? Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know who I am? I could say a word and there would be 12 legions of angels here. I could say a word and the entire Roman Empire would be wiped out, Peter. Folks, we should wonder. We should stand in awe at the restraint of Jesus. There on that cross, there as he was beaten, He was not and is not caught in the unstoppable gears of human cruelty and power. Go back to Jesus in the temple with that whip, driving those animals out, driving those people out, overturning the tables. Folks, that's not an aberration. It's a revelation of who he is. So we've covered that. No. This was not unlike Jesus. This was exactly like Jesus. But why did he do this? Why? John tells us his disciples remembered the words of David from Psalm 69:17. Zeal, it's there. There we read it this morning. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now you must know, I must tell you that Psalm 69, you can read this afternoon, is not a messianic psalm. In that psalm, David is suffering. He's hurting. He's being persecuted. And he says he's being persecuted because of the name of God, because he loves God, because he's serving God. And he says to God, zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house, God, has eaten me up. Now, if David, a sinful man, if David said that he had a zeal for the house of God, What kind of zeal would Jesus have for the house of God? That's what the disciples saw. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus Jesus looked at the temple as his father's house. 
And we'll see in a moment he looked at it as his own house. What if you went back to your house after this service and you found out that your house, the house where you live, that you own, had been taken over by thugs? They somehow had gotten your deed and they were in your house with all your furniture and they had turned it into a meth lab. You go to the police. The police say, why are you upset? That's my house. Well, somehow they've gotten a deed. That's what happened to the temple. People other than the people of God had taken it over. And Jesus shows up at his father's house and says, what are you doing? This is my father's house. What's wrong? What's wrong with the picture in the scene before us? What's missing here? I'll tell you what's missing. The people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, the priest, the Sanhedrin, had allowed this to happen at God's house. They did not have a zeal for God's house. Why weren't they the ones overturning the tables and driving out the livestock and saying, this can't be. We've asked this question before in this place. Where's the temple today? We don't have a temple like that. We don't go to Jerusalem at Passover. What have we learned over and over and over again here in this room? The church of Jesus Christ has become the temple. When those disciples confessed their faith and said, you're Messiah, He looked at them and speaking of their faith, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my temple. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. We've read this frequently and we'll keep returning to it. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus. He's speaking to the church now at Ephesus. He's speaking to a church that's predominantly a Gentile church. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's speaking to the church. That's who you are, the household of God. That's one. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is part of this building in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. That's twice in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's three times. He said, you are the temple where God dwells. You're the household of God. You're a dwelling place for God. What is our zeal level for Christ Presbyterian Church? This is a valid question that that this scene just puts in our faces. What is our zeal level? Jesus was zealous for God's holiness, for reverence, for the house of God. There was no reverence 
in that court of Gentiles that had been turned into a stockyard auction. Everything, as we gather to worship, everything about this sanctuary, our worship in this place should shout to Fayette County, God is holy. Where's our zeal for the house of God? Where's our zeal for who we worship? Jesus was doing something else here besides demonstrating his zeal for God's house. You see, this was another sign. John's book is known as the Gospel of Signs. This was another sign that Jesus was the Messiah. How do the officials of the temple respond? Look at verse 18. Now, this is how the leaders of the temple responded. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They didn't say he did something wrong. They understood that this was a messianic claim. Jesus was saying, this is my father's house. There was a, no, no Jew, not the, even the high priest, would refer to God as father. It was Jesus. It was radical when Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our father. They didn't pray like that before this. No high priest would have said, this is my father's house. They understood this was a messianic claim that Jesus was making. It said, what sign do you give us that you're the one? That's what they were saying. Jesus answers with an encrypted message in verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They laughed. It took 46 years to build this temple, and it did. It was 46 years in the building. They laughed. And you're going to replace it? You're going, if it's torn down, you're going to build it back in three days. Here, John comments that after the resurrection, they understood. He was speaking about the temple of his body. He was talking about himself being the temple. When therefore he was raised from the dead, this is verse 22, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word of God they spoke. They remembered. They said, hey, remember what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple? Remember? He said, tear this temple down, kill this temple, and I'll build it back in three days. They laughed. The temple is God's presence, isn't it? Wherever God is present, that's where the temple is. Jesus is God's presence. Look at Revelation 21, 22. And this passage is profound, you all. Go home and think about it. Go back and, and read it. Look at Revelation 21, 22. I did not see, speaking of heaven, and saying, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Who's the temple? The Lamb? Jesus. What makes the church the temple of God? 
It's not because we have a steeple. What makes the church, the house of God, the presence of Jesus? The presence of God is what makes it. What did Jesus say? Where two or three gather in my name, I will be in their midst. He didn't say where two or three gather, I'll be in their midst. He said where two or three gather in my name, I will be in their midst. Why must we have zeal for Christ Presbyterian Church? It's not the structure. It's not the building. But when we gather as members, we could be gathered out there in that field right now. And the church would not be in this room. It would be out there in that field. We're the temple, the house of God, because Jesus is here. That's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us the temple. There's one great truth as we stand back now and look at this. There's one great truth that we take from this passage. This scene shouts to us that God cares how he is worshipped. Jesus was saying they are in the court of the Gentiles. This is not the way you worship God. At the burning bush, what did God, what was God's word to Moses? Take off your shoes, Moses. Why? Because you are on holy ground. You're in the presence of the Almighty. Do you know what was written throughout the tabernacle? You know, think about this. When just after Israel left Egypt, what did God do? God gave them directions to how to build a tabernacle and said, build it this specific way. What was he doing? I'm going to dwell in your midst. Later, it was a temple in Jerusalem. Build it like this because I'm going to dwell in your midst. You know what was written in the tabernacle? And the temple, all through it, on just utensils, all the way through the temple and tabernacle. Holy to the Lord. That's what was written. Holy, it means to separate, to set apart. The temple, the tabernacle is set apart from the world, dedicated to God, dedicated for all use. How are we marked when we join the church? This is a baptismal form. We're anointed, we're baptized. What does that baptism signify? That we're being set apart for holy use. When we gather, we're a part of God's temple, set apart for holy use. Oh, folks, he cares. All this shouts to us. He cares how we worship him. Read Isaiah 6. Isaiah fell on his face in the temple. His vision was in the temple. Why did he fall on his face in the temple? He had a vision of really what the temple was. He saw the the God on his throne. He said, I saw him on his throne. And he was exalted and lifted up. He filled the temple. It says his robe did not just fill the aisle of the temple 
his robe filled the temple and there were these great seraphims singing. What were they singing? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Isaiah fell on his face. The Son of God who became Jesus, he was there in that temple in Isaiah's day. He was there. He had seen the glory of God for eons. Remember, he was with God and he was God. And here he was, walking into the house of God. And it was like an auction in a stockyard. Money changing. Sheep and oxen filled the place. Vendors were bartering. Would-be worshipers were being fleeced. God's holiness was being blasphemed. Jesus was shouting, there's no reverence in this place. You are actually blaspheming. This very temple. This was the court of the Gentiles. Where Gentiles were supposed to come and hear the gospel. And yet the world was determining what was happening in that room at that point. People, God determines how we worship him, not us. The evangelical church has spent the last generation letting the world determine how the people of God are to worship. The church has been saying, we, we must adjust to the present voice of the culture. They just, they're just not going to accept our worship. Well, let's hear the end of it. If you look in your bulletin, right under... The order of public worship, fourth Sunday in Lent, March 14th, 2021 at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. What do we read? We cross the threshold of the secular to the sacred, from the common to the uncommon, from the profane to the holy. The prelude is a sacred curtain. Drop between the world and the sanctuary. During this time, be prayerful and reverent in preparation for the worship of our holy God in his sanctuary. Do you know where we got that? We got it from Jesus when he went to the temple in John 2 and shouted, God Almighty cares how you worship. 